Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 84, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today I'm joined by Alex Comstock of Whitetail DNA. We're talking North Dakota velvet bucks and adapting hunting styles when moving to a new state. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope everyone out there is doing well and uh, enjoying some time outside in the timber. I've actually had a chance to get out this past week, which uh, I took. So I I guess let me back up for a second. I'm assuming a lot of you have probably had the same cold front roll through or I'm using air quotes. You can't see me, you know, quote unquote cold front. Um, You know, this first cold front of October usually get you uh, gets you pretty, pretty excited. I think the one thing I had to remind myself of was that this was not um, this was not prime time. Um, I might have been a little overexcited, but it was the first cold front of the year or noticeable cold front front of the year, uh, which is caused to get to get excited. So I did take off a day of work last week. The cold front hit on Friday. Um, there was about a 15, 16 degree temperature drop. And so I took Friday off and hit the timber, did an all day sit, which is kind of unusual for this this time of year. But, um, you know, the, the, the piece of public that I was hunting, the access isn't great. And so. My only way to really kind of get in um, with decent access is to try to get in before everything kind of get, gets back to bed because I've bumped some deer uh, on entrance uh, a couple different times. So planned to do an all-day sit, did that, um, and actually it was the first sit that I did in the Mantis saddle. Um, so the Tethered makes a this saddle called the Mantis. Um, I use that in the Predator platform. It's the first all-day sit, man. I got to tell you, um, super comfortable. And, uh, definitely, definitely going to be, uh, deploying that as my, probably my primary means of, of hunting from, for the foreseeable future. You know, I'm sure I'll probably hang, you know, a stand here and there that might be something that's preset. Um, you know, whenever I hit this, uh, this, uh, Ohio hunt here in the next few weeks, um, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that, the area that I'm going to. So there's a couple spots where I may just go hang a stand and have it there. Um, that way I can hunt it or the, the two buddies that I'm going with could hunt it if they want to. Um, but by and large, I'm probably going to be hunting out of the saddle. So, you know, but the uh, I'm not going to get into great detail because John and I will do a, a catch up here at some point where we kind of go over, um, you know, the hunts that we've been doing the, the, the past few weeks. But, you know, nothing nothing right home about on, on that hunt. You know, it was almost as if the, uh, the cold front didn't even hit is what it, the deer movement seemed like. And so then I went back out for an evening hunt on Saturday and did manage to harvest the dough. So I uh, got some some meat in the freezer, which I'm pretty excited about. 
and uh, and did that in the Mantis saddle as well. Um, and gotta gotta say, it was one of those things where um, you know the shot opportunity probably wouldn't have presented itself if it weren't for hunting out of a saddle. Um, you know, maybe maybe you know I get presented a shot as she as she may have passed some uh, some brush and stuff and got to the other side of it, but. Um, you know, there's nothing saying that she would have gotten there. So I took the the first best shot opportunity and, uh, and that was all kind of made, you know, came to fruition because of the, uh, the saddle to a degree. Um, so if, if you're considering saddle hunting, I would definitely, I would definitely check it out. You know, tethered, tethered is the saddle that I've been using. Um, super lightweight, uh, super comfortable. Uh, so give those guys a check. Uh, also before we jump into the podcast here, just have one kind of pseudo announcement to make. I can't divulge a ton of the details uh, at, at this moment, but, uh, I have, uh, I'll be launching something new here in probably the next month to month and a half. I'd say November ish is when it should, um, be made, be made public, I guess. Um, so just, I guess, keep your ears peeled for that. I'll kind of provide information as, as I go as much as I can, but right now it's kind of at its infancy, uh, stage of, um, getting off the ground. Um, so I'm super excited for this super, you know, looking forward to sharing it with all, all of you out there, um, that listen to this, that listen to this show. Uh, I think you guys will dig it. Um, and I can't, can't wait to, uh, to, to bring it to fruition and, and, and be able to share it with all of you. Uh, but before we jump into the podcast with Alex, let's take a quick second to talk about our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. We are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, when you use Wicked Tree or when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your wicked purchase we're also brought to you by exodus outdoor gear the new exodus trek is a byproduct of all the consumer voices who have been excited about what exodus truck cameras has to offer but just can't fit a 200 dollars camera in their budget and that is okay a budget-friendly camera backed by the industry's leading warranty is now here the trek comes in at 145 dollars has the same proprietary shell design as the lift series camera same five-year warranty unmatched customer service photo video time lapse and hybrid modes all with a single or a simple single single line backlit LED display and you get about 20,000 images on one set of lithium batteries. If you'd like to learn more, head over to exodusoutdoorgear.com and check them out and if you like what you see, save yourself 20 bucks and use the promo code truth at checkout. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest whether you're hunting, fishing, camping, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com, promo code TRUTH at checkout. Save yourself 20%. Now let's get Alex on the line. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I'm joined by a fellow that I've followed for for a while. Uh, we've been we've been going steady on on social media. Maybe you could say could say that. I know we've kind of commented on people or on each other's posts and followed what each other was kind of doing. Uh, but I'm joined by Alex Comstock of Whitetail DNA. You may know him, of course, from his blog and from his website or some of the videos that he's put out. And he's also an outdoor writer in a couple of different publications and a couple of different digital uh, digital platforms as well. But before we dive into some hunting goodies, how you doing, man? Doing pretty good. How are you doing, man? I'm doing all right, man. That's it. so. We were just talking before we hopped on here that uh, you got a nice little balmy hunt scheduled for tomorrow morning in the uh, in the event of the, the the 20 degree range. Yeah, it's gonna be a little bit chilly in the morning tomorrow. That's for sure. 
Yeah, it's like I, I was lamenting, you know, before we jumped on the uh, the warm weather here of, of Pennsylvania. I think I would take that twenty something degree. I always like when I get the opportunity to transition from my subalpine gear into my fanatic gear. Like that to me signifies like hunting season's actually here. Yeah, I hear you on that. You know, unless I'm out west, and then of course the hunting is actually in. But um, you know, usually in the early part of the year, I'll I'll rock the subalpine while I still have some foliage on the leaves, and then transition to my colder colder gear. And then it really feels like hunting season. Like I'm supposed to be in the tree stand. I'm a little bit bundled up. You know, the right. no, the nose and cheeks are cold. You know, um, you you try not to go to the bathroom while you're in the stand because you don't want to have to unbuckle. You know, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's officially deer season then. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I know you know. I know you, of course, have the whitetail DNA platform that you that you run and, and you do some videos and so on and so forth. But you know, and I'm familiar with some of the things that you've been up to. But for those folks out there listening that may not be as familiar with who you are, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit of background about you know where you're from, you know what you do for a living, and then of, of course what you're doing in the uh, in the whitetail world. Yeah, so I'm from northern Minnesota, so I lived up here for pretty much most of my life and then had moved out to North Dakota for a while then recently came back. Um, and then as far as what I do uh, for work, I actually run like digital marketing and social media and stuff at a ski resort. Okay. Um, and then, so that's kind of the day job every day. And then, you know, most nights I'm either, if I'm not hunting, I'm, I'm writing or I'm editing videos and you know, I do a lot of freelancing, writing for other websites or magazines or whatnot. So there's a always something to keep me busy. Right. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. We have a similar background in terms of just the the marketing kind of aspect of of things. So I, I assume you're you're also a skier or snow uh, snow sport advocate. Um, plot twist. No, I actually hate the winter and winter sports. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, my uh, the owner of where I work, he. Um, actually um he invented like rage and block and field logic and stuff back in the day okay um, so i kind of work for him on that aspect because in the summertime we do um like 3d courses archery okay. and put on some big archery events so nice i kind of just have to bear with the uh the winter season if you will right that's a that's kind of interesting man like i would assume you know that you were all into the uh the winter, the winter sports, but that's cool that you get to kind of, you know, uh, I guess scratch your archery itch, you know, in and in and out of season, which is kind of nice. You know, you're able to apply it, which is good. Yeah, it's definitely nice, and it's it's nice during the fall. We have you know a nice range right outside of pretty much my office, so I go out and shoot, you know, lunch before I go hunting if I'm leaving from work. So it sets up nice. Yeah, that's terrible to have an archery range while you're at work. That's awful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we have we have a, a liquor cabinet at my at my office and that is about as close <laughs> as I get to um, That's not bad either. No, you know, there's there's worse things. You know, I will yeah. I, I will agree with that. There's usually um, you know, some craft beer and a, a liquor cabinet at your at your disposal whenever, which is pretty which is pretty nice. You know, working in advertising, it's it's very mad men, I guess you could say, you know. It, it's yeah, that kind of sure. that kind of setup. Um, which is good that the liquor is there because I used to just keep a bottle in my drawer, you know, at my, at my desk, which was very mad, man. I had to kind of, yeah. had ixnay that, you know, three o'clock, it was like, have a drink at three. It's, uh, yeah, I had to curb that a little bit, you know, it always made, a always made client calls after three o'clock, a little dicey, you know, a little more, a little more interesting. <laughs> it could get, it could get Western as some would say, you know, so. Um, but cool, man. So you know, before we jump into, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
Well, I guess let me back up for a second. What we want to cover today, you know, one of the reasons Alex and I really kind of started striking up a conversation was is first he had a killer early season hunt that we want to get the, get all the deets on and the scoop on. But you had mentioned kind of, you know, you were, you know, grew up for the most part in Minnesota and then you moved to North Dakota and now you're, you're back in Minnesota. And so you kind of have an interesting perspective on, you know, how you, I guess, approach hunting in different places as, you know, you've, you've moved a couple of times and, and kind of had to reevaluate the landscape and kind of remap how you're going to hunt and learn new properties and stuff like that. So I'm always interested when folks kind of have that kind of perspective of hunting a bunch of different areas. And sometimes it's by choice and sometimes it's just by circumstance. Right. Um, so I'm always kind of intrigued whenever folks hunting, hunt different areas and how they kind of, how they manage those things. But the other thing more recently that we were just talking about a little bit before we jumped on was that you did go down and kind of share camp and, 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 uh, was with the folks from the hunting public and, and from the beast when they were doing their, their public land challenge. And I wanted to get a sense from you, you know, just around, cause you know, we were talking beforehand and, and you can talk to dudes, you know, or guys or girls that, that you, you know, that have a lot of information to share that are good hunters and stuff. And you, and you pick up little pieces right here and there. But I was just curious if, if being with them, like while they were going through their, their approach and, you know, and kind of, you know, take, tearing apart a piece of land and, you know, kind of planning out what their strategies were going to be. Like, what were some of the insights or things that you picked up that you may not have thought or that you may not have picked up if you weren't with them while they were doing it? Yeah, well, it was definitely, um, it was a lot of fun and interesting couple of days. Like you said, just being around them and it's a lot different than just, you know, talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first things that stood out to me was just, you know, I think everyone kind of knows how hardcore Dan and Fault is, but mm-hmm. it's actually, I didn't even physically I didn't even get to see him in the two and a half, three days that I was there because <laughs> I mean, he was spotted. He had picked was a few hour drive and then he was walking, I think two or three miles back to where he was hunting, um, him and Joe from the hunting beast. And they were, they wouldn't get back to camp till probably midnight, 1am. So we were asleep. And then usually in the mornings that I was there, me, Zach and Jake, and we would get up in the morning and go hunting. So we'd be up at four. Um, and they would sleep until seven, eight o'clock and then go out and do the long drive and the hike and scout and hunt all day. And so over the course of three days, I didn't even see them. So <laughs> that kind of stood out to me when right. some people kind of think they put in a lot of work, but that is just, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, the proof's in the pudding, one of the, you know, and Joe was able to shoot a nice buck while I was down there. So right, that was definitely kind of eye opening to me. Nice. So were there any things like just in parts of the conversations that you heard where you were like, you know, something where you were like, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't thought of that, you know, as they were kind of talking about their approach. Was there anything that kind of stood out in that, in that regard? Um, well, like for in Dan's case, I mean, you think deep and they were talking where they were finding spots that were a mile, mile and a half back. And they weren't even considering that like, quote unquote, you know, deep. They had they right. kept going deeper. And like, even when you think you're a mile and a half or even if you are a mile and a half back and you think you're deep enough, if, you know, they hunted, I don't know exactly where, but from, you know, the first to the second to the third night, based on the sign, they kept pushing deeper and deeper and deeper until the sign was like, you need to hunt right here. And by then they were three miles back. So, (laughs) um, yeah, it's, yeah, man, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know that I've ever hiked for whitetail three miles back into somewhere. I could, oh, actually, I could sit here and say with 100% certainty that I haven't. Yeah, I could say factually I've never done that, so. Yeah, not that not that far. And that's just, you know, because the other thing is, too, is, like, 
I would probably, and this is just me being completely honest. It's like, I would probably get a mile and a half in and go, this sign looks really good. I'm going to set up here. Right. You know, you know what I mean? And it's that, you know, it's that perspective, I guess, you know, that, that, I mean, Dan, I mean, I'm not telling anyone here that, you know, something that they don't already know, which is just, you know, Dan has such an acute ability to kind of take apart, a, you know, a piece of timber. And, and he almost understands, like, without even having to see the sign, he almost has an expectation of what he should see, and that's what he's looking for. You know what I mean? Whereas, you know, I think a lot of times where I might fall short, and it might be the same for a lot of folks, I'd be interested to see if, if you feel the same way, where it's like, I don't go in with a good enough expectation or understanding of what I'm anticipating I should see. I just go in and I see something that seems good to me because I don't have a context, and I'm like, oh, this looks great. I'm going to set up right here. Where and where in fact, like what I'm looking at might be decent, but it's probably not the best that piece has to offer. Well, I think that's in large part why he was traveling so far. I mean, I wasn't there on their day one and two, but from what I was hearing is that he showed up and you know expecting one thing and pretty much wasn't satisfied with it. So then he sought out the next best, and that was happened to be a few hours away. So right, right, yeah. Which I think most people in that instance would just kind of deal with what's there, but. Oh yeah, they were. You know, their little rule was just got to be in driving distance, and well, he was driving, even if it was three hours. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it's you know it's quality over quantity. I guess you know what I mean. It's like I can I'll hunt less, but the hunts I'll get in will be better. You know, is I guess the approach. You know, um, I'm probably in the same boat as you. It's like I probably would have been like, well, this is where I'm at. <laughs> I'm gonna make the best of it. You know what I mean? It's right. you know I think a lot of folks would kind of fall into a. That, but that's also why he's the the big buck serial killer. <laughs> you know what I mean? He gets, yeah. gets the name honestly. You know he's willing to go in and um, do the things others aren't aren't willing to do. I mean, I'm I think you know all of us as dedicated kind of diehard hunters, you know, are aspiring to that. You know, and 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 we're working toward that. Um, and it's not something I think even he would admit that like you just land with, like you develop that. You know right. what I mean? It's it's something that kind of as you as you go and you mature as a hunter, you you start to get a little bit more comfortable with winging it to a degree. And you're yeah. not truly winging it, but like you, you may not know exactly what you're going to run into, but you know well enough what you're looking for and what you're looking at isn't what you're looking for. So let's go ahead and make a move. You know, that was one of my things for this coming year was just to be more aggressive and um, not get married to positions and, and, and make myself move if I'm just not feeling it. And if it might just even be a gut feeling that I'm just like, you know what, I'm just not feeling this spot. I got to move. So, right. And what, what I found really interesting down there is, you know, how you said, you know, people look for certain things. Like Dan was looking for certain, um, you know, like Oak Islands that were dropping acorns within, you know, marshy areas. And he wasn't finding that there. And then, you know, like Zach and Jake and, and Aaron and them, when they're, you know, they're usually looking for those spots that are, you know, way back, just pretty much avoiding the pressure. Mm-hmm. And, and down there, there really wasn't that much pressure. So they were pushing way back when they really didn't need to and so the first night that i was there you know everyone's hunting you know um like garrett from diy sportsman was down there he mm-hmm. was hunting a, a mile or two back on one of the nights they were going way back and then first night i'm there i went on this al- alfalfa slash like grass field and i was 300 yards from the truck and i it was the only one to see a buck that night <laughs> and so it's and then we started hunting that area a bunch and i passed on two nice bucks the next night and i was 400 yards from the truck and so 
I think what was eye opening to them and just and to me as well. I mean, to see that when there's not the pressure that you expected, you don't necessarily need to be pushing way back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like they were talking, if they were to come back and hunt it in November when there's a lot of people back there hunting or gun season, it might almost be easier because you can kind of pinpoint those spots that people aren't going to. Mm-hmm. And then you can get back in those pockets that those deer are kind of are kind of going to because, you know, there's no pressure there. So that was kind of interesting to me too. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, it's one of those, you know, because, you know, again, not to harp on things that Dan has said, but, you know, those classic overlooked type of places, right, that people just don't think about. And no one would think of, like, I'm going to walk 400 yards from my truck and this is where I'm going to set up and hunt and I'm going to have a great hunt. But, you know, the interesting part of that too is that that's, it's, you know, as you had mentioned, that later in the year it might be different, but that early part of the season is, I think, kind of, it's in some cases really, I think, sometimes easier to hunt and sometimes a lot harder to hunt. I think it's all dependent upon, you know, what type of terrain and, and habitat you have access to and that whatever chunk you're hunting. You know, you know, we all know, of course, if you can get in early, in, you know, whether it's a state and we'll talk about your North Dakota hunt here. But if you can get into, you know, a, a state that opens relatively early, you know, that you can still get on their, their bed to food pattern and stuff like that. And you have a deer that you've watched and you have some, in, you know, information on it's like. Those can be really fun hunts, but they can also be, you know, you know, higher percentage hunts, right? Because you have an idea of what's going to happen. He's still on, on a, on a kind of a predictable move, a predictable pattern. Yeah. But in the early season, when if you don't have that, de- those dedicated kind of food sources like that, and you go into places that don't have that, it, it becomes a lot harder to kind of determine like, well, where are they, where are they feeding every night? You know, where is their specific food destination? There's not a food plot or a, or a field or whatever the case, you know, case might be. So you're really having to kind of understand betting at that point, because that's really what you have to hunt then, you know what I mean? Which is what, you know, those guys really kind of all specialize in is, is that type of, you know, bed hunting and stuff like that, which is critical. I think that that time of year, and it's, it's interesting about the pressure too, you know, it's like, it might've been easier with more pressure because it would take, it would push those deer. Like, you know, I think you were saying, Zach was saying into more predictable areas Yep. You know, and I think even like I'm experiencing now and hunting this, this one swamp in like more of a suburb, like suburban kind of setting. And it's interesting because like areas you would think would be ideal because they're around people. It's, it's, it's not, which is, which is weird. And I think part of it's because they're just around people all the time. Like they're not, I don't feel like they're nearly as, I feel like they're almost more curious than they are leery of certain like sounds and smells, if that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. You know, because I had one, I had one of the shooters in there kind of creep up on me as I was cam locking my stand to the tree because I was making a little bit of noise scraping the bark, you know? And I think he literally just heard that and was like, huh, what's that? And just started walking in. He never saw me, never smelled me. He just stood at like 35, 40 yards and looked and was trying to figure out what that sound was. And then just, he couldn't see anything. So he just turned around and walked away. Right. You know, and now back on our family farm, you know, in, in central PA, man, like you, hear a a deer hears a piece of bark scrape man and they're in the next county (laughs) you know what i mean like that's just like you're not going to see that deer again you know but well cool man let's so speaking of the early season hunts man i want to i want to jump into this this north dakota hunt man because that was so it's something in all honesty is something i've always wanted to do as an early season western hunt uh so definitely a little little envious one of the things i'd like to do is also (laughs) tag a tag a velvet buck it's one of the things actually John, uh, you know, that, that usually co-hosts this thing with me. Yeah. He's, it's one of his goals is to get a velvet buck. And he had a, he had a great hunt this year and just, it had a, 
it, it didn't come together for him, which was which was a bummer. Um, so definitely, uh, definitely a little envious of your, of your, of your velvet hunt, but (laughs) I definitely want to jump into kind of the more specifics of this before we do that. I want to just kind of get a sense from you, you know, set the stage for us, you know, like, of course you mentioned it's in North Dakota, but give us a sense of like the terrain that you were in what the habitat was like, was it public, was it private and just the, the overall size of the parcel that you were hunting. Yeah. So when, when you think in North Dakota, it isn't necessarily what, I mean, people kind of think either just flatlands or you know western north dakota where you kind of have the you know like the big hills and whatnot um this is you know i'm on the eastern side of the state so there's a lot of river bottom um, a lot of small wood lots around crop fields um so pretty much what i focus on is the river bottoms and i was hunting you know early season i'm hunting crop fields up kind of around the river bottom hunting like um shelter belts that are jutting into the crop fields or on the edges of these river bottoms like right on the edge of the woods because most of the deer are bedding in and around the river bottoms and the wind swirls down there and so it can be really tough to hunt early in the year mm-hmm. and so that's pretty much what i was focusing on and where i was where i actually shot the buck was private but i mean it's it borders public and all the river bottoms are actually public land but like the access to it is private and then i also have permission on that as well okay so the buck was actually shot on private, but it's where, um, you know, if anyone that follow along any of my, any of my hunts from like years before is where I was hunting same property that I was hunting this buck that I'd hunted for a few years named Kobe. And so he was living on the public, mm-hmm. but it was up in private. So, okay. So what's a, I'm just naive here with some of the, um, some of the features out in the, the Western part of the country. So what is a shelter belt? Just like a windrow, okay. you know, a row of trees pretty much that are breaking up um, crop fields because kind of okay. just breaking out the wind out there because from wind, the er- thing that... wind erosion and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so this, this buck that you were, that you, that you ended up harvesting, did, did you know this particular, particular buck? Like, had you been following him or was he just, uh, was he just an unlucky fella? Um, no, I had gotten pictures of him all summer. Um, and so he was kind of, I kind of considered him, and it kind of sounds bad, but kind of considered him like my backup buck. Cause right. Every year out there, I've always got a number of just, I mean, I've always got a lot of really big deer to hunt out there. Mm-hmm. And this year, I just had a number of things fall where I just, this certain property where I shot him, he was the biggest buck that was around there, the most mature. Hmm. Um, and there's a couple other properties that I've been hunting that I have been hunting bucks for the past or known of for the past for me three or four years the whole time I've been out there. So I had a couple of bucks that I thought were in the six to seven year old range. Um, but they haven't, they hadn't shown up. And then I had a couple of trail cameras that were messed with and stolen and uh-huh. SD cards taken. And so it kind of a debacle on the property where I wanted to hunt those deer. And so then I kind of came back and this buck had been showing up pretty regularly all summer. And I kind of thought I had a good chance at him. Right. Yeah, that's a bummer, man. Like I've seen, I've seen some of your trail camera pictures, man, and you definitely certifiably have some, had have had some hammers <laughs> on yeah. there, um, which makes me doubly envious. They were they were uh, velvet hammers at that, so yeah. <laughs> that's like the the, uh, the 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 double whammy, so to speak. But um, so so you so essentially you have some familiarity with this property, then, right? That's a yeah, you, you find it right in the about. past, right? Okay, so. So let's get in the way back machine, I guess, here, since this is, you know, a familiar to you uh, property. And, you know, I, I guess walk me through, 
you know, how you break this property down in terms of, in terms of scouting. And I know you have, you know, history with it, but like, if you kind of think back as to how you kind of dissected this property, like to figure out, you know, where I know you'd mentioned the river bottoms are typically where they bed and, you know, and, and stuff like that. But like, help me understand, I guess, how you dissected like their travel routes and their travel corridors and stuff like that. Are there certain terrain features that they're going to follow? Cause here on the, you know, East or East, East coast here in PA, you know, the things you'll kind of look for is like, we do have some ridges and some mountains and stuff like that. So there's pretty clear, you know, difference in elevation or elevation change, you know, and, and hard edges that you can kind of find that kind of give you a really good sense of what you might want to start with. Whenever you're in a place like North Dakota, you know, it's like where you're having, you know, shelter belts for wind erosion and you are dealing with relatively flat ish land. You know, I just want to kind of understand how you kind of take something like that apart where you don't have significant changes, so to speak. Right. Well, what I looked for, and this is why I was drawn to this property, was that being from northern Minnesota, I know how to hunt in woods, right? And so I looked, this was the biggest, it's only a few hundred acres, but it was kind of the biggest piece of public that I could find that had consistency in, you know, actual trees, because in some parts, they can be kind of hard to find out there. So, um, so that's why I went after this property kind of right away. And then, you know, when I first went after or started hunting it back in, I think 2015, it was kind of hunting the edges, um, hunting, you know, the crop field since I had permission on the, which crop fields private. So which I had permission there and then kind of diving into it a little more during the rut. Um, it's just, I mean, there isn't really a lot of terrain features. There's, you know, the river running through it. So kind of, you can look at, you know, for some oxbows and some bedding and stuff like that. Um, but then it was, I mean, mainly during the spring when I would get in there and do a lot of shed hunting is where I really learned how they were kind of using it. Mm-hmm. And pretty much the river bottom goes for, you know, miles and miles and I have can hunt just a small piece of it. So they're pretty much just following it up and down because it's only so wide. I mean, right. you, know, you got crops on one side and you got a highway on the other side. So they're not going to go out and for the most part, they're not going to be going out and crossing the highway, you know, right. where they're kind of just following it up and down more or less. And so right. there isn't really any, you know, major terrain features, so to speak of. Um, and so that's pretty much how I looked at it. And then based on what the crops are, it can kind of affect how the deer are coming out of it or if they're following it to the next property pretty much. Right. So what kind of crops were, were, were nearby or on this property? So this year I had corn and beans, so it was kind of nice. And years past, like last year, the one field was bad beans and then the other field was just a cover crop. And so it didn't have as much of an effect last year. Right. So so I'm assuming the corn was standing while you were hunting, right? Yeah. So what type of challenges does that did that pose? Or did you walk in? Did you walk into it thinking that because I let me back up for a second different folks have different perspectives on having standing corn, right? Some people really like it. Some people despise having standing corn whenever they get ready to hunt. I guess I'm asking, where do you fall on that? And how do you think the standing corn impacted your hunt? So going into it, I, I was more on the positive side because I figured, I mean, last year, last year when I was hunting it, I was thinking in order to kill a buck, I had to get into the woods, into the river bottom because it was just open for so long they wouldn't be coming out in daylight up into the crops. But now with that being standing corn, I mean, I didn't even touch the woods this summer. I just left it alone. And I thought with the corn that it would be provide more security cover because there was just, I mean, 
it felt a lot more secluded, you know? I mean, it's back on a little, um, they call them prairie roads, just a little access road pretty much so I could drive back there. Right. And then with, with the corn, it just, it felt secluded. And then having the beans, you know, right next to it, I thought that was good. And I mean, we'll get into it more, but where my stand was, it was in a, it was on the edge of standing corn, beans, and then I had fruit trees all around me. So, Oh, that's terrible. Uh, yeah. It was an awful <laughs> setup. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I kind of fall under the camp of, well, I, I fall into the camp that usually the corn, by the time I can hunt any of the areas that I have that have any significant agriculture is usually all off because, you know, PA comes in October one, September 29th, just, you know, depending on how the weekends fall and stuff. Um, and usually the corn for me is, is down by there. I kind of fall into the same camp as you where it's like, I don't mind it being up. Um, particularly if some with, with some of the farms kind of adjacent to us don't have corn, um, just because as you had mentioned, it's just another level of security. I mean, it, it provides, you know, incredible side cover, um, you know, bedding, of course, they can kind of eat and sleep all in, all in the same place, which is, you know, great for keeping deer safe, you know, from, from neighbors, um, in, until it comes down. I, you know, now I will say, you know, I I've had instances where the corn has just kind of stayed up, um, and was taken off really, really late in the year. And I didn't like it necessarily if it stayed up for too long. I didn't mind it early in the season, but as the season kind of wore on, I, w- I would prefer for it to uh, for it to be down, um, only because I kind of have a better understanding of the timber than I do hunting edges, because I hunt more timber than I do edges typically, uh, or field edges, I guess I should say. Um, so I'm definitely more comfortable hunting back in the timber. I, I get, which is odd because I get a little lost whenever I start getting close to field edges. <laughs> yeah, you know, odd, odd, you know, odd enough. You would think it would be the easier type of hunt, but I just because it's so they're so you know vast it's like they could literally pop out anywhere you know and so but if i'm back in the timber it's like i kind of have an idea of like they really can only hand they can really only or will really only travel these handful of corridors or these handful of pinch points or these handful of places that are going to make the most sense um so kind of for me it narrows down my my options and i can be more focused on my on my you know stand locations but uh so i'm just curious man like you know and we, we were talking about cameras you know, how, you know, how do you use for this property specifically then just in general? So how do you use trail cameras in general? Like do you use, are you running off of the most recent Intel? Is that kind of how you like to, like the hunters, you know, look at your trail camera data and and figure out what's happening and make a move? Or are you more of the mind of kind of playing the long game and looking at trail camera data over the course of, you know, previous year, maybe even the year prior to that to, to watch a specific deer or, even if you're not watching a specific deer using mature deer as kind of your, um, as your pilot, knowing that mature, that mature deer in general will kind of act and use similar terrain features because those are the most safe and logical places for mature deer to, to use the things for them to use. So how are you kind of using your, your trail camera information? Yeah. So it's all, it all depends, but out there, I mean, I kind of do both, right? So if I was hunting, if let's say the property this year, that, my camera had gotten messed with and everything. If I would have gotten pictures of one of the bucks that I had been hunting or known of from the previous years, Mm -hmm. then I would have, once I knew he was there, I would have used, I would have combined the data that I already had going in, um, from this year. And then would have used, you know, previous year's data when he showed up in daylight, that first week of season, what were the conditions? Um, then I would have used previous year's data because I think that yearly, yearly trends, especially early season, can 
really be strong. And so, right. Um, but with this particular deer, I didn't know of him really until this year. And so all I had to go off was this data. So, I mean, the day that I shot him, I literally had checked the camera and he had shown up in daylight the two days prior. So I knew I had to move in if I wanted to shoot him now, pretty much. Right. Um, before he changed, because where I think people get in trouble is they think they can, a lot of people I think like to hunt off, you know, two or three weeks, you know, before, you know, that data, when they go pull a card in middle of October or November, when that's kind of already happened and gone. Mm-hmm. But at, you know, early, I mean, I shot that buck on this year, September 4th and season opened August 31st. And so, you know, when they're still in that summer pattern, you have time where if they've been doing something for a week or two, they're probably going to still do it. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. No, I mean the best, the, the perfect storm is having, you know, historical data on, on a critter and then getting some validation real time in the present to make a move. You know what I mean? Like that's the, you know, the, the crown jewel, so to speak. Um, you know, me, I, I kind of, you know, PA is one of those States where it's, it's, it's a challenge to get a deer, um, to, to make it from year to year, you know, to get past even, you know, three and a half is a, is a a good mature deer in, in PA. Um, you know, a lot of two and a half year olds, but if you can find a three and a half year old, like you, you've done pretty well. And, and so I've played, I've kind of played hell trying to find a deer to kind of look at from year to year. Cause it seems like they always, you know, they don't, they don't make it through. I've only ever had one where I was able to hunt for multiple, for two years. Um, so what I've actually started doing is more using the trail camera data from years past and kind of looking at my older age class deer, whatever that might be in PA, you know, sometimes you get a four year old and, you know, maybe a couple three year olds and kind of watch what they do and how they use the terrain and just kind of understand that this is the best, these are the best terrain, terrain features to travel, right? Cause the oldest smartest deer are using these things and these are the best places for them to bed because the older smarter deer are, are bedding in these areas and so I kind of use that as my way to scout now, which is different. Like, this is the first year that I've done that. So, you know, the jury's still out as to whether or not it's successful. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's and I'm really kind of using it on my dad's new property because um, I didn't hunt it at all last year and just watched it with cameras. And then, of course, I've hunted it once this year, watched it with cameras. And, now, and I'm noticing that the older deer are using specific areas, right? And even though the two deer that I wanted to make it through last year didn't make it, the th- the two i guess there's two three-year-olds i guess on the property like they're both using the same terrain features and the same kind of travel patterns as the two deer prior to, from the prior year so i started kind of using them as like the the guinea pigs to kind of figure out how they use things and then i i basically hunt features as opposed to specific deer if that makes sense yeah, yeah totally that makes a lot of sense I yeah see where that probably have some success with that yeah it's just it's it's my kind of way of trying to combat the the pressure of of like a heavily pressured and hunted state you know and still trying to put myself in the best scenarios to have you know the sightings and encounters with the best deer you know what i mean the most mature deer so that's kind of the the approach like i said we'll see if, how it plays out the for this year but um so far the, tra- the trail cameras are telling me that it's still kind of holding true but but we'll see Yet, yet it remains to be seen. So the next thing I want to kind of, you know, 
talk about a little bit was is you alluded to it earlier was your was your stand placement right because this stand placement when i was watching the video and you were describing your stand placement in the video and i was like dude this stand placement is (laughs) is money (laughs) um so if you wouldn't mind just kind of walk us through the stand placement but also kind of like what was going through your mind as you were kind of selecting where you were going to set up yeah so i've had a stand in that spot for it's been in that tree since i've been out there so three years um and originally when i had hung it three years ago it was pretty much an observation stand so i was then the what was a cornfield was i don't remember what it was so it was picked beans when i hung it but i could see forever i could see where deer were popping out of the woods out of the river bottom um and then it's, i've only hunted that stand a couple of times over the years because i pretty much didn't need to then and it was i was hunting all in the woods and then this year, when I saw that, you know, when I came in to hang cameras in July and it was corn, I was like, holy smokes, that spot could be good if the other field is beans. And when I got down there, it was. And then the trees that were around it, since I've been out there, have never produced hard mass. And then all of a sudden this year, I think I had five or six apple trees and a plum tree all within <laughs> 20 yards of the stand. So Nice. And it was just caked in deer poop. So, nice. Um, I was like, well, I probably should uh, put up a camera and hunt here this year. So, right. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much. I mean, I was at the very end of a, you know, a shelter belt or a windrow. So it's, this tree line pretty much comes from the road all the way. I don't know if it's a half mile or whatnot, but all the way down and then into, you know, the crops kind of come around it. So it's a, it's a natural, you know, it's a point. And the trails that were coming from the standing corn to the beans or vice versa right in front of the stand through this little grassy area where all the fruit trees were was just beat down and so it was just it was a easy spot to pick right so were you this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and tacovis is your stop for the best in western style tacovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer including men's and women's boots apparel hats bags and more all tacovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend and tacovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I guess let me let me ask it this way. So were you kind of I guess aware of the prevailing wind for for that particular piece of property from from previous years? Like I mean, did you know that like, you know, usually in this time of year I'm going to get a southwest wind or whatever whatever it is predominantly? Yep. Yeah, it was yeah. yeah southwest. Southwest, okay, nice. And that that stand setup was kind of what you had for for a southwest wind, right? So it was kind of blowing over my shoulder, kind of pretty much the right where I came, almost cutting it down, the, you know, into the cornfield. So right, if, if they were betting in the corn, like like if I had to walk by them almost, then I would have been kind of screwed. But right, that did, 
didn't seem to be the case. Now, when you're playing the wind in that stand location, or just any stand location in general, are you typically a guy who likes to cut the wind? You know, are you do you play the wind aggressively, or do you try to give the deer the wind? You know, so what what's your approach with with that? Yeah, I've always I think I found that you know most of the times on those hunts where you're having the seeing the most mature bucks, usually your winds, you know, cutting it like just just enough where you're getting by you know mm-hmm. um it, it wasn't the case in this hunt but um in a lot of them that's how i usually am playing it right okay yeah i'm this this upcoming weekend it's a couple of these deer i've been watching you know i, I know that so again I don't, I don't have a whole lot of intel on this particular property because it's new to me this year so i'm kind of learning as i go um but i do know that they they've traveled and they have liked to travel in the past on a on a northeast wind or or a, a north northeast wind um and it's weird because we're getting a nice temp drop and it's going to be a south northwest wind this weekend all weekend friday and saturday and it's one of those winds where i i hesitated for a second about going into hunt it but then i realized that if i if i play my cards right and i set up in the right position i'm actually going to be able to kind of set up between two bedding areas and have my scent kind of blow between them and they can't really get from one bedding area to the other passing behind me is how I'll set up. It'll be kind of to my back. They have to come out in front of me because the, the, the swamp is so thick in that particular area. They can't really pass through. So, which is why there's a trail that kind of wraps around this one kind of, you know, I guess it's a small turn that kind of runs into a, like a small runoff or like a small, like a rainwater runoff. Um, and so, I figured, I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to go ahead and just risk it for the biscuit this weekend. <laughs> and I'm going to play the, the iffy wind and, uh, and, and hopefully it doesn't, doesn't burn me because if I play it right and I, and if, if it works out how I think it will, it's like, I, I should be pretty bulletproof in this, in this particular set. And, uh, by the time they get anywhere close to recognize that I'm there, they'll, if they're worthy of an arrow, they'll already have one. So Exactly. Yeah. So that's my plan. So I'll, I'll keep you posted on how, how it works. So I've been kind of, I've been staring at the maps going, man, is this going to work? Like, or am I just going to totally screw myself? <laughs> like, so, um, yeah, I've definitely gone into a number of those hunts where it's like, well, I'm either going to screw it all up or I'm going to shoot one. So that's kind of my feeling this weekend. I'm like, this is, you know, it, I'm going to just, I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know, uh, cause I only have a handful of more hunts for this year on that property before I end up going out of state and then the, the season will be kind of squashed at that point. But yeah. So, all right. So we've kind of, you know, picked your brain through, you know, kind of how you chose your stand location, you know, how you've kind of located and target this deer, what the scenario was in terms of the habitat terrain and all, and all that stuff in this property. Now I want you to kind of walk through, walk through the, the, the hunt with me. So, you know, what was the plan once you, once you got to your hunting location, how many days were you planning to be there? What was the, what was the total trip, you know, encompassing in terms of days? So the plan was I got there on Thursday and I was going to hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So I had what, five days to hunt. Um, and I had, you know, spots picked out where I, you know, I got there, you know, that Friday season doesn't open till noon. Um, so that morning I went through and checked cameras and I um, had left my best my best spot alone because I had the right wind based on yearly data. And then when I went in there um, to hunt, my stand had been stolen. So that had screwed that up right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then my my plans were to 
pretty much I wanted to bounce around this one property that is completely separate to where I actually shot this buck. But then um, on the second day of the hunt, I got really sick. It was really, really weird. I mean, I got the flu or something bad, and I was pretty much in bed for half the hunting trip. Um, It was pretty brutal. So I tried going out one night, um, went out to the stand that I ended up shooting this buck out of, and sat for like 20 minutes and then pretty much couldn't do it. And then, uh, and then the, so pretty much that brought me to Tuesday, which was, I mean, the whole, most of the hunting trip was a waste for me. And I thought it was kind of a, a loss and I was pretty bummed about it until right. that, that last day when I went in and was able to shoot them. Man. Yeah. I saw watching the video, you, you, you looked, uh, you looked pretty peaked the one day in the uh, in the stand dude it's a it was a, you, you were quite a trooper to crawl up in the stand because i don't know that i could that i could do it necessarily i hunted once with walking pneumonia uh, yeah and and i wouldn't go to the doctor until after my hunting trip so i hunted three days in the rain with walking pneumonia and then ended up at the at the emergency room which was which was a lot of fun you know it's uh but I, and i didn't kill anything that year either. no actually i did kill anything and i about lost a lung trying to drag that deer out so the things we do for deer yeah exactly it was ridiculous though i went to the doctor he was like yeah he's like what's wrong i was like well when i work out in the mornings i feel like i'm gonna pass out he's like yeah it sounds like you have concrete in your lungs and i was like oh so i was like so that's good great yeah i was like awesome um cool so so what was the i guess what were the weather conditions out there man i mean were you i mean did you get decent weather was it was it you know ridiculously hot like what was the scenario with that no, it was actually pretty good weather conditions. I yeah. mean, deer movement wasn't um, amazing because I was there in camp with a few of my buddies that I came out with. And, you know, opening night, one of the guys saw a couple really nice bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, overall, it was, I want to say in the evenings, it was in the 60s. And usually out there that time of the year, it's, you know, I've hunted when it's in, you know, dang near 100 degrees. So Right, right. So, so let's talk about let's talk about the approach now. Like, so now walk me through, you know, you're, you're sitting in the stand, you know, it's like, you know, you're in your best spot, right? We talked about the stand set up. You got some, got some fruit trees around you. You got a little ag, you know, you got the, the Southwest wind that you've got your stand set up for, you know, so the wind, so that your, your wind situation is right, you know, but you, you were kind of feeling, feeling, you know, like poop during this trip, you know what I mean? And, 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 and thinking to yourself, you've probably wasted some of your best days hunting, you know, laying in bed, not feeling well. Um, right. you know, so talk to me about like, you know, that, that hunt, the day of the hunt, like the approach of the deer through the shot, like what was like, how did it all unfold? Yeah. So I'm gonna actually quickly back up to the day before because it almost never happened because the day before that Monday, I'd went out and hunted where my buddy had seen a couple of shooters opening night and everyone else had already left at that point. Um, and I went out there, didn't see a single deer and I had packed up his blind and was, you know, about this close to just driving straight home that night and saving a day of vacation for the rut or something. Right. Um, and then for whatever reason, I just decided, I was like, you know what? I'm out here. I took the vacation. I'm going to hunt. And so then that next day, which was Tuesday, the fourth, I'd went around, checked a bunch of cameras and there was really just nothing going on all nighttime movement. I was getting bummed and then I went and checked the camera that he was on and he had been in daylight the night before 
and then the day before that in the morning and i was like that's all i got to go off of so that's that's where i'm hunting so then i pretty much i checked that camera walked back to the car changed got all ready and then walked back out to the stand um and then i'd gotten set up fairly early that night and uh it was pretty cool i mean it was cool enough because i had to put on my my sweatshirt so right um and then i think it was about i think sunset that night was at I think you could legally shoot until about eight thirty, if I if I remember correctly. Wow. Um, and it was about eight o'clock, so probably right about sunset. I looked out into the bean field, and just there he was standing at about sixty yards. I don't <laughs> know where he came. I'm sure he was bedded in the corn because this cornfield kind of wraps wraps around. So he kind of popped out of that into the beans. And then when I first saw him, you know, I kind of got my camera on him, and. I actually didn't know if I was going to shoot this buck. I, this is one of those deer where I was like, well, I'll decide when I see him type of deal. Right. And as soon as I saw him, you know, I saw, I put my binos up, saw he was in full velvet. There wasn't, you know, a doubt, there wasn't a doubt in my mind. There was no question I was shooting him like if I could. Right. Uh, so then at that moment I started to get, you know, super excited and they kind of calmed myself down and, and then he just kind of came on a rope to me <laughs> and I knew that he was coming into the, I don't know if he was going to eat apples or plums that night, but... Um, <laughs> he, had his, he, had, he had his pick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he started coming at me, and then he pretty much closed the distance from about 60 yards to 20 yards, and not that long. And he had turned and was broadside, and I had drawn back, and you know I film all my hunts, and I would looked at the camera, and he wasn't in frame, and... I've never done this, but I was like, I felt super confident about it. So I, I let down. <laughs> oh man. Um, and got the camera back on him, And I was like, Oh boy, please don't have screwed this one up. Right. Um, Cause I'm one who usually, I love to film, but when you self film, I, for me, the camera doesn't really dictate whether I shoot or not. Right. In, in this, this instance, I just felt confident enough that I'd have enough time. Um, so then he proceeded to come directly underneath me. It was all in the apples. It was underneath me for probably 10 or so minutes. Um, so at this point, you know, I don't know how you are, but everyone's different. When you got a buck that you want to shoot right there for so long, you know, for some people, they'll calm down in those in that time. I'm the opposite. <laughs> and so with every minute that goes by, I'm like, come on, come on, come on. And I'm just freaking out a little bit more and more having to calm myself down right and then uh finally he had walked so what he was gonna do was i think he was gonna cross right in front of me um in the corn and pretty much walk up probably the way i came in and he got to where i checked the trail camera and he started you know doing the head bob and sniffing on the ground and i was yep. like all right he's, he's picking up on my ground scent right now like so then i was getting ready I didn't know what he was going to do. And he kind of just wheeled. It kind of bounded back into the beans. And he only ran about 20 yards, turned to his left, and started walking at a quick pace. And so then I kind of put my camera in a spot. I had no idea if he was going to be in frame or not. And he came through, and you know I had to stop him. He was at 20 yards, and I let the arrow fly and knew it was a good shot. And he kind of took off into the beans, and I lost him. And that's when the celebrations kind of started yeah that was awesome man yeah that it was like i was watching that the the video whenever he was approaching you i was like man shoot 
shoot. And then he got up under your tree and I'm like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, a little risky. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's funny that you mentioned that like people react differently. Right. Cause like, I mean, I honestly, and I don't know if you're the same way, but I prefer when something's approaching, like it, it, I prefer for it to happen. Like, like right now, like, like I don't instantly. Yeah. Like I want to see it. I want to have to draw back and I want to have to release an arrow and I want it to yeah. all happen within like 30 seconds. You know what I mean? Like that's whenever I, I actually perform the best is when I don't have to kind of analyze it necessarily. The deer I killed last year was that way. I mean, I only saw him for, you know, it was maybe a minute, you know what I mean? Maybe a minute and a half total. The the year year before that, it was, I didn't even see him. I heard him. And from the time that I heard him till I saw him was probably 30 seconds and an arrow was gone. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was it. And I probably only had visual of him for 10 of those 30 seconds. Um, and I think that comes down to preparation, right? I mean, you feel confident in yourself and you're prepared. You, you know, you kind of just fall back on what you know. And in that, that instant, you yeah. can make it happen, you know, yeah. for some, some people that maybe if you're not as prepared, it might be a little harder for you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, it's one of those things where if I just have to, it's almost like you go in, like, I hate saying the word killer. Cause I don't, it's just like a weird word, but like it, in those instant instances, like, I feel like I go in like predator mode. You know what I mean? Where it's like everything else kind of goes away and it's just predation. Right. Thing yep. needs to, I'm going to dispatch that thing. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. that's what's going to happen, you know? Um, cause I, I faintly remember anything that happens between like the draw and the release. You know what I mean? It's 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 yep. kind of odd. And I, I've heard other people talk about it and they kind of do the same thing. And it's not that I don't control my shot, but it's just that it becomes so part of me that I don't even really recognize that I'm doing it. But it's interesting because that same hunt that I killed that deer in Ohio, the day before I blew an opportunity and I watched a deer for probably 30 minutes. You know, he approached and it was great deer, um, you know, classic, nice big Ohio deer. And he came in following a doe and was ripping up trees and, you know, making, you know, a scene trying to impress his lady friend. And, you know, and I watched him approach for like 30 minutes, you know, just watched him. At first I got real worked up. And then it lasted so long that I actually got to the point to where I was like, this isn't even going to happen. So why do I, why am I getting worked up? <laughs> yeah. You know, I had convinced myself that it wasn't going to work. You know, it wasn't going to happen. So then I just relaxed. Um, end of that story was I ended up grunting him back in, but he snuck in on me and came in behind me. And I, I, uh, thought he was still following the dose. So I grunted one more time to try to get him to come back. Cause I was watching him rip up some trees in this brush below me. And then he went silent. And then whenever I grunted to try to get him to come in, I didn't check my surroundings, looked to my left and he was standing at 20 yards watching me grunt. So blew that opportunity, but it was one of those things where it's like I had completely calmed down because I really thought it wasn't going to, wasn't going to work out. But right. So yeah, I prefer the, uh, the short ones. So last question for this, you know, for, for this one, um, you know, of course you, you've recovered the deer, you know, and great velvet buck. Um, you were super pumped. I was super pumped for you. Uh, super <laughs> little, little envious as well. Um, but what do you think for this particular hunt? Like, what was the key to this hunt? Why do you think that you were, you were ultimately successful in this trip? Um, I think two things. The first I'll just say is kind of just, um, persevering through kind of like anything that would be negative because it would have been real easy for me not to try to toot my own horn by any means, but just to kind of pack it in and go home because I mean, when you're down in the dumps and you're, really not feeling good and you're sick and then you know everyone else that you're in camp with ended up leaving because 
for whatever reason, work that they weren't seeing enough deer. I don't know to tell me it was work, but right. my other thoughts. <laughs> um, and, you know, so now you're the only one there and it would just been really easy to go home, but staying there that extra, that extra day that, you know, I had lotted. And then when I was there that extra day, going through and checking all my cameras and, you know, I mean, it sounds like an easy thing, but out there, mostly I'm hunting public. And so a camera check is a mile walk, a swap of a card and a mile walk back, you know? Right. Um, yep. So doing all that and then getting that, you know, that up-to-date, you know, data that, all right, well, this buck was in daylight two days prior. It's September 4th. Any day he could shed that velvet. And once he sheds that velvet, I mean, they practically become a different animal. Yeah. Um, and so that recent data and just going in after him and getting in the stand that night. And uh, I think those were probably the two things that I think uh, helped me get that deer for sure. Yeah, man. I think people... I think people underestimate the the power of a positive attitude when you're hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's real easy to get negative real quick, and it's it, it, and it becomes you know Murphy's law. You know, to a degree, it's like if you whether it. it I, I love the quote: "Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right." You know what I mean? And that's one yeah. of the, that, and that's so applicable to deer hunting. You know, it's like if you if you're sitting in a tree stand, any guy or girl who consistently harvests mature deer i don't care about how big but just mature deer the one thing that i've found like in common with all of them whether it's end fault or whether it's you know the guys from the hunting public or whether it's a guy like cody DeQuisto or whatever they will say if you're in a tree stand and you don't think that's a tree you're going to kill out of then what the hell are you doing in it oh yeah for sure you know what i mean and it's I- like it, it, and it's that kind of thing where it's like you know you have to have you have to think you're going to get it done and that you're right and that you're in the game because if you don't think that then then you definitely aren't right and if you don't think that even if something does happen you're not going to be mentally prepared to do it yeah and so yeah yeah exactly well that's awesome man so I want to shift gears now um, to the last kind of part of our conversation here which is you know kind of t- taking a look at you know, how you approach hunting some of these different areas, because, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, you're from Minnesota. Um, you were in North Dakota, I think you said for a couple of years, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then you had moved back to, to Minnesota, which, you know, and I'm not sure at what ages the, you know, these, these moves occurred and stuff like that and where you were at in terms of like your hunting, hunting career, if you will. Um, so I'm always interested to get, you know, pick people's brains about how they approach different areas, you know, cause moving, you know, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, man, if I just picked up and moved to like, you know, Idaho or North Dakota, whatever, you know what I mean? Like from Pennsylvania, yeah. it's like, man, that is a, that's a slap in the face in terms of like having to kind of relearn how to hunt an area because everything's different. It's not like moving from Pennsylvania to Ohio where it's like, eh, it's kind of the same, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's like right. a lot of the same type of terrain features. Some of the mountain ranges in Ohio are a little bit bigger, like the river, you know, especially if you're hunting near rivers and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can get into some decent mountain ground on PA, but you know, some of the um, public land out there gets a little woolier than in, than in Pennsylvania, so to speak. Um, but you know, you're going from States where it's like, you know, I would, you know, think that parts of Minnesota might be, very similar to what you would find typically in the Midwest where you have some hardwood, you probably have some swamps, you have some ag. And then when you go to North Dakota, it's like you have some woods, but then you've got these ag fields and these strips that help wind erosion. And then you've got (laughs) 
nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I guess talk to me a little bit about, you know, when you moved, I want to go back and forth if you don't mind between the two, because you have experience in both places. So you know, what was your first step in starting to figure out, you know, your new home state as you moved back to Minnesota? Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools. Do yourself a favor and check out Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest hand saws and pull saws on earth. You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. Okay, you want to start at when I came back to Minnesota just recently? Yeah, yeah. So when you when you came back from Minnesota, because we'll assume you know North Dakota was was home for the past how, however many years, and that Minnesota was kind of the new the new frontier for you the mo- most recently. Right. Okay. Well, I'm gonna just to give a little backstory. So before I moved out to North Dakota, was I moved out there when I was twenty. It was my sophomore year of college, I think. Okay. Uh, and so it was kind of before I moved out there. It was right as I was learn really learning to about deer and getting into it i mean i didn't start bow hunting until i was 15 um Mm -hmm. and so in minnesota all the bow hunting experience i had was either in the real big woods or i'm in a city hunt as well so like you know suburban behind houses using baseball fields as your funnels um and so when i'm out to north dakota it was like a like a shock um but then when I came back to Minnesota now, after kind of, you know, I kind of like found myself as a bow hunter and really came into my own, I think, out in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came back to Minnesota, it was definitely another, like another shock because I went from, you know, out in North Dakota, you're walking, you know, mile to a tree stand, you're way out in the middle of nowhere, like you were saying. And then when I come back to Minnesota here, I mean, I'm hunting actually now a lot of this similar areas to where I was hunting when I was younger. I mean, in the, my high school days, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking at it with a different eye, you know, I mean, I've got permission on a small piece of private. That's really good. Um, but I was hunting definitely wrong back when I, back then. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got a lot of big woods public that I'm still learning now because back then I really didn't know what I was doing. And now I, kind of have an idea of what i'm doing right um so it's just it's a lot of just you know learning and adapting to change because I mean, we can get into this more but the way deer act you know in, in my urban spots compared out in north dakota are you know vastly different right yeah no 100 there man because like i said earlier this is the first year that i'm hunting some suburban areas you know when i say suburban areas there's there's farmland around there's some crop fields that are nearby you know but there are you know uh, small little housing developments that pop up in between, you know, these, these pieces of farmland. And they definitely do act different, you know, different than the deer that I've, I've typically, you know, hunted in general. So I guess, so, so with that backstory, so how did you first, like, what was the first thing you did when you got back to Minnesota? Like what was the first kind of thing that you had to kind of reacquaint yourself with just from like a, an approach or like a strategy perspective? So when I first came back to Minnesota, it was pretty much just like, where are the deer, more or less. Right. Um, and then after that, it was kind of trying to, I had ran a bunch of cameras just trying to locate mature bucks because I moved back during, you know, it was pretty much a year ago, like 
you know, next week. Mm -hmm. So October of last year. And so it was just a lot of bouncing around, figuring out, I mean, cause with the suburban hunt that I do, which is what I mainly focused on last year, you know, you have assigned zones. Mm -hmm. So with, when it comes to public land, I can only hunt certain areas. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when it comes to, you can get permission wherever you want, you know, with private, but last year I didn't do that. I had just done the public and kind of tried to bounce around and wasn't very successful and really had nothing to show for mature bucks last year. Mm -hmm. And then this year going into the summer, I was started reach. I started just going down my contacts and going, who do I know that has land? Where can I, I want to get some private property around because the public is just, it's, it's really tough when in the, in the urban spots. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at the same time it was like, all right, I want to start learning these big woods. And so, I started getting cameras up, doing a lot of scouting in the summer. And then, um, for the urban stuff, I started reaching out to people. And then I thought of a property that I had permission on back in, back in the day. Um, and then I had lost permission when I had left, even if I had stayed, I would have lost it because the landowner where I was hunting, um, he was an older, older guy and he had passed away and his son had taken it over the house and stuff. And, um, pretty much him and his family didn't want me hunting there because of the kids and whatnot. And they're scared of arrows flying around or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's random arrows that just fly around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I had reached out to him and said, Hey, you know, it's been a few years wondering if there's any chance I could have permission to hunt because every year I always had big bucks, mature bucks on camera there. And he's like, well, why don't you come over and talk with me and my wife? And so I went over there and talked to them and, I think they just wanted to be comfortable knowing kind of who I was. Yeah, sure. And gave the backstory, told them what I do just to help, you know, like I yeah. at least know somewhat what I'm doing. You right. Know? Right. And so then they, they regave me permission, which was huge because this is just a small 12 acre piece, but it's got a couple oaks on it. Um, and it's just this, it gets a lot of pressure around it, but no one's hunted on. The only person that's ever hunted this property in the last eight years is me. Right. So, and I haven't been there for three, so that's been um, a really good, well, hopefully it's going to be a good spot. I've got a couple pictures, or I've got a couple different bucks on this property that that are uh, would be my biggest buck that I'd ever shoot for sure. Nice. Yeah, man, it's, it's funny because, you know, those, some of those little suburban, like small suburb pockets, man, they, they have great deer because... I mean, a lot of what you encounter is exactly, or folks encounter is exactly what you encountered, where they, people who own the, own the property don't want people hunting it, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether they just don't understand and, you know, think it might be unsafe for them or their kids or whatever, or, or maybe they just don't like hunting or whatever the case is. Right. And so these deer just get age on them, man, because they're just, they're not being hunted. They're not being, being pressured. Um, the one thing that I found too, that I think was, has been, you know, helpful for me, just kind of thinking of, you know, s having similar situations, right? I live outside of a metro area in Philadelphia. And so I hunt the public permission kind of parcels around here, right? Where I have like specific places that I can hunt that are public and it's public access, but permission hunting, per hunting by permission is like, I guess the way you could frame it. Right. Um, you know, and so what I tried to do was just seek out like the what looked like to be the crappiest land possible. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, Hey, nobody wants to hunt the swamp because it's going to be full of mosquitoes and, and, and undergrowth and just nasty stuff. And there's no 
like designated food source nearby. I was like, yeah. give me that one. Right. You know, I was like, cause no one's ever going to walk in it. You know, I was like, and that's, and that's kind of what has held, held true. And then whenever I see some of the deer that I'm getting on camera, I'm like, man, it's clear. Nobody has hunted in here because this is Pennsylvania and anything that has, you know, a, a relatively, not even, I won't even say a sizable rack, a legal rack is going to get shot most likely. Right. Um, you know, and the deer that I'm seeing in here are like, you know, I, I, there's one that's, I think the youngest one that I have, that's a full like rack buck is probably two and a half. He might be three and a half. And then there's four other deer in there that are all three and a half. And the one, the one I believe is six. And for PA, that's a crazy that's old deer. A, yeah. It's a mature deer anywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, and I'm saying three and a half for the other ones, but I'm thinking they're probably four and a half year olds. Um, at least two of them, but, and this is literally kind of like you, man, it's like, this is a 25 acre piece, right? You know, it's not hundreds of acres or, or whatever. It's just, they've got everything they need in that one little spot to stay safe. And that's where they, that's where they like to stay. But so, I mean, you kind of mentioned that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're focusing on, you know, you have a piece of private ground, but you're also kind of focusing on, on the big woods. So what are you thinking of? I guess, let me, let me ask it this way. Like how much have you hunted big woods in the past? And you know, what's your experience with, with big woods or is this kind of your first like foray into it? My big woods in the past is pretty much just, um, limited. Okay. Um, so like I go up to deer camp every year, like for rifle season, but mm-hmm. I don't really rifle hunt. So I'll kind of go out and hunt with the guys or see it, um, or bow hunt out there. And so it's, it's definitely very limited. Like I've, I've done it some, mm-hmm. but not to the extent where I actually dove in and I'm learning and trying to figure out bedding areas and where they're actually, you know, before it was more of just go pick a spot out in the middle of 10,000 acres and sit. Um, Right. And so now it's more of trying to really hone in and, you know, narrow these spots down and trying to figure it out more. Right. Yeah. The, uh, I've hunted last year, I hunted like a legit big wood setting and that was, it was a tough hunt. You know, I mean, big woods hunting is definitely the guys who are able to get it done consistently in the big woods setting, man. It's like, they're just, there's something different about them. (laughs) Oh yeah, I totally agree. And that's why even now, I mean, I'll be honest. That's why I gravitate to even my more urban spots because it's small pieces. It's a, you know, I'm out of the truck and the stand in two minutes, you know, I mean, sometimes I can see the truck from the stand or I'm looking at backyards and it's, but there's a lot of mature bucks around. Right. Yeah. And it's. It's I like you know it's easier to do that opposed to having to drive half an hour and then four wheel another half hour and then walk another half hour you know <laughs> right, I right. mean yeah and it, then and then maybe see a deer if you get lucky right right yeah I mean for me it's um, I've been I guess I've been fortunate where the past couple of years I've gotten to kind of get a mix of everything you know what I mean where you know where I hunt around where I live you know near near Philadelphia it's like for convenience it's like I hunt some of the you know, public land that's around here. Um, I do have access to one really small private parcel. When I say small, it's three acres that, that, that borders public land. Um, and then, you know, and I recently got, this year got some uh, other permission on that, you know, public at, or public, public ground, but private uh, hunting permission. Um, and, and that's kind of what I hunt around, around Philadelphia. So it's a little, it's a little mix in the big, in the, in the, public land around here, like the bigger blocks, like whether it's, you know, a state forest or whatever the case might be, um, they aren't huge. So I wouldn't classify them necessarily as, as, as big woods. 
Um, and then, you know, I go back home and I hunt and we have some family property and that I do some habitat management stuff on and stuff like that. So that's always kind of fun to hunt that. And then usually I take a trip every year, you know, or I do take a trip every year to Ohio. And that's usually where it becomes a little bit more of a, a bigger wood setting. Um, where I'm going this year, which I've been to in the past, isn't as much. It's more hunting like um, ridges and, and, and like bottoms and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But last year where I was at was, you know, a very large track of big woods, um, which was cool. So it's like I've gotten to kind of do all of it, which is which is really fun. And the big woods thing is just it's it's really cool, man. But you got to have, as you were saying earlier with the perseverance, man, it's just like I went it was an eight day hunt. and I saw three deer in eight days. Yeah, that's, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like and that's kind of like what you got to have the you know, the stomach for it. It's like, you're not going to get run over by deer, but if you find the right areas, man, it's like they can grow some great deer because they're just, you know, like you were saying, it's the, there's not a lot of people who are going to hike that far back in to find them. Right, so yeah. the, the age structure a lot of time is right, you know? So, but, uh, so what do you do differently, man, in this, in this set, set up here in, in Minnesota for your, for your trail camera strategy? Like do you, do you kind of, you know, have the same approach or do you, do you, you set up, you know, in, in different types of areas, you know, so how are you using trail cameras now versus how you use, how you typically would use them in, in uh, North Dakota? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. I mean, now I'm just trying to establish, I mean, there's a lot of cameras that I've got out now that I'll check, but I mean, a lot of that data will be more useful to me next year. Mm-hmm. Um, cause this time of year, you're not really, I mean, like my small private property, I'm checking the camera every so often just to make sure those deer are still around but i'm not necessarily hunting based on what the camera tells me you know if that makes sense right no that totally makes sense um so i mean it's still pretty it's still pretty similar right so you know you know i guess how 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 do you anticipate now that you're kind of you know what i'll call local to minnesota how do you think your hunting strategy will change this year and going forward versus how you've hunted in the past based on a new area and kind of what you're, you're figuring out with the different types of uh, properties you're hunting. Yeah. I think it'll just be more of trying newest spots, um, doing a lot of running and gunning, um, and really just trying to figure out, you know, picking these, these properties and figuring out what works because out in North Dakota, after a couple of years, I had it pretty much pinned down where, yeah, I still had to do the work and check the cameras and figure out where these deer were, but I could have, guess pretty much all right well i'm gonna be sitting here in september i'll be probably bounced around here october you know what i mean right mm-hmm. now i kind of you asked me what i'm gonna be doing next month in minnesota i have really no idea yet you know <laughs> nice <laughs> hey me either so you know, <laughs> but but it's doing that and and kind of just gathering that base and you know i might get lucky i mean i might get one of these bucks on the small private property but between you know the information that i gather and what I get on cameras, it'll give me a lot, a bigger base for next year. Right. So do you, I mean, when you were mentioning running and gunning, you know, it's like, that's, I was saying, I think in the podcast that we put out last week that, you know, I kind of purposefully this year, um, I don't have any stand set at all. I don't have one single stand that is pre-hung. Um, I have some trees kind of in mind and stuff like that because I'm trying to force myself to, um, not get married to locations and it was something I picked up on, you know, and, and actually talking to Zach, um, that I realized that I was really kind of missing opportunities because I was just, you know, having a, a location either set or knowing exactly where I was going to go. And I just kind of beeline it to that spot and I set up. 
you know, where his approach is really like he, you know, and a lot of what I'm picking up on too is, you know, guys like Dan or the hunting public guys, again, just guys and girls who are killing big deer. Um, you know, they're, they're, they, they scout on their way to their stand. Like they're not married to a spot. Um, if they're walking in and they're kind of always in tune and they pick up on, you know, a new scrape that opened up with, you know, that's a primary scrape area that has like four scrapes, you know, around it within like 10 yards and it has a bunch of side cover. It's like, I'm hunting that spot. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like drop what you're doing, get into a tree there because that's the hot sign. I'm trying to do more of that. So, you know, are you, when you say you're doing a lot of running and gunning, are you really trying to scout like as you're hunting and as you're walking in? Um, but, or do you really kind of have places that you want to kind of set up and just kind of watch? No, I'm definitely a more of the mindset of what they're doing and what you're trying to do more of. I mean, I think that can be so valuable. And even when I was down there with them, just seeing that firsthand, I mean, you pick an area on the map that you, you know, you might have a few spots picked out. I think deer could be bedded here or there could be, you know, I think I'm going to look for some sign in this area. And then as you're moving on your way in, you know, whether you're hunting the ground, I mean, what they do a lot too is just they go check a spot out. They don't like it. You know, they move to the next one. They're just hunting from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're doing that or having a stand on your back, I think that can be really valuable in that way. You're not, like you said, married to a tree. I mean, I think so many people just, they've got that tree in their mind that had a stand there forever that's where they're going you know and yeah. i mean i've been guilty of that over the years for sure yeah. but when you kind of you know back up and open your mindset whether you're going on the ground or stand on your back and scout while you're going back to where and you might scout and not see anything get back to the spot you picked and not see anything and then that can be challenging too because um you set up there or do you then do you start over you know mm-hmm. i mean i saw i don't know was it couple days ago when the hunting public they had put out a video and um down in iowa and i think aaron had went in expecting a spot to be great and he kind of got in there and it wasn't what he thought and then he backed up and picked out a new spot and did it i think two or three four times and they finally settled on an area and saw a whole bunch of deer so <laughs> i mean granted yeah. it's iowa so it doesn't count but no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh you gotta, we gotta take our we gotta take our shots when we can yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, man, it, it, it was funny because whenever I was having that conversation with him, um, you know, it's it really came down to like trusting yourself, you know, oh, yeah. and knowing that that you're reading things the right way. And that was the one thing that I was kind of mentioning. It's like, I just don't think folks trust themselves enough to make those kind of decisions. Like you got to have a little bit of, I don't want to say arrogance, but you have to have some confidence in, in knowing, knowing that you know what you're doing and that you know what you're seeing. You know, totally. I was like, cause that's, I was like, I think that that's the part that I'm trying to get over the hump. Right. Cause you know, I, I'm at the point now where, you know, I think that I can walk in and I can do some scouting, you know, in the off season and, and I can kind of understand like when signs being laid down and I can watch for sign and pay attention to trail camera, like Intel and stuff like that from year to year and understand like, how things are going to change through the year in different, in different areas. You know what I mean? Like how certain parts of the, of a farm or a property are going to come on in certain times of the year and, and stuff like that. Right. Uh, from a historical perspective, I, and that helps me pick locations for each part of the season, you know, the following year and stuff like that. But I had, haven't gotten to the point of confidence of going, like I can just walk into the woods and go, I'm going to go to the stand and then just scout my way to it and go, 
I saw a handful of scrapes and a couple rubs and I think this is the hot sign and I'm going to set up on it. Like I yeah. just haven't got to that point yet. Cause I always feel like I'm like I'm missing something. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? I feel like there's a puzzle piece that's missing. And I'm like, if I don't get to that stand location, which I know historically is somewhere where I should be, I'm going to miss something that's going to happen there because I just historically, I, I think that I'm right. You know what I mean? It's like, and I just got to get out of that mindset, man. And that's the, I, that I think is the hardest part is just breaking that habit. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not easy to do, that's for sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it becomes easier to do once you lay a couple hammers down doing it. Well, yeah, I think so. That. <laughs> you know, you gain you gain a little bit more confidence. But uh, so I've kept you, man, just for a little bit over over an hour, dude. And I want to be sensitive to your uh, your time. I know you got an early morning for a. Uh, for a hunt and some, some cool temperatures. So I want to make sure you uh, have a chance to get prepped for that. But before I let you go, uh, I want to, I want to do two things. First thing I want to do is I want you to share a hunting story with us. That's memorable to you. And then we'll uh, ask you where you can, where we can find more information about you. Yeah. Uh, memorable hunt. I don't know. There's quite a few of them. Um, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to go with uh, probably the, first buck that we shot out in north dakota um i actually this isn't i didn't shoot this deer but my buddy i got my buddy tyler that i do all my hunting with out there he still lives out there um but so our, when i had moved out there you know i still remember sending him a text and be like hey i'm you know i'm transferring i'm gonna go i'm gonna finish school out there we were super pumped and it was like i mean i decided late it was august already or <laughs> july and so then I all of a sudden was transferring and moving out there and we immediately, he wasn't, you know, when you're by yourself, he wasn't really getting fully into it. But with me coming out there, we had each other. It was like, all right, let's go hundred percent and figure out this North Dakota thing, you know? Right. right. And, uh, we had picked a few properties or whatnot. And then I had thrown up some cameras and I remember a day after school going out and checking this camera and I had, I had no idea what to expect. It's just small. It looks like nothing, but. It was kind of one of those first pieces that I picked that was within a half hour of where we were at. Um, check this camera, and I mean, I almost fell over when I first book I got pictures <laughs> of. It was this giant. I mean, he ended up being, you know, I think he was, what, 182 or 181. Um, just a, he was so, so big, and I'd never really seen a deer that big before. Right. Um, or even got a deer that big on camera. And so, and then uh, Tyler's, he's a, he was a much more astute student than I was, um, an engineer, an engineer. And I was trying to convince him to skip class this one day in October because uh, we had the right conditions. It was a little drizzly and we need to go hang a stand. And I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And finally convinced him to skip school. We went out and we go to hang the stand. And uh, the plan was <clears throat> that I was going to sit this stand that we were hanging. And, uh, and then he was going to go sit a different stand where we were, where we were actually getting pictures of the buck, um, over the scrape. And so we went out, hung the stand. And then I realized that I'd left my bow at the, at the car. And so I was like, you know, it only makes sense for Tyler just to sit that stand. Then I'll go back and get my bow and head over to the other stand. And, um, it would just made more sense that way. So I ended up having Tyler sit that stand. I went back to the car, got my bow, went back to the stand that we were getting pictures of this buck over the scrape and he, <laughs> still remember this was pretty funny so the first thing i had seen i had seen this huge huge uh 
animal out in this field and I didn't know what it was at first. I thought it was like a horse and uh, ended up being a moose and I didn't know there was a moose out in eastern North Dakota. And uh, I texted him. I was like, yeah, I got one moose out in front of me. He's like, what? You sure it's not like a bear? Or a... And I was like, no, dude, I got a moose out there. And I was like, you see anything? And then uh, I remember him texting me, yeah, I've seen, I think he had seen nine or ten or that, at that point, small wow. bucks and does. And I was like, oh, looks like a uh, that looks like I had originally picked the right spot to be. Right. And uh, as I was climbing out of the stand that night, you know, I was like, oh, I didn't see any deer. I'm climbing out. And as I'm climbing down, my phone starts buzzing. It's him. And I was like, you know, you know, still whispering like, hello. And I had nothing on the other end. And I just, I could like practically hear him hyperventilating. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> and it's just like, and then I was like, all right, well, meet me. You know, where there's a spot where these two trails kind of came out. I was like, meet me there, and uh, then we'll talk about it. And so I was like, what happened? And he's like, he could not speak. And it's like, all <laughs> he just, you know, when, you, when you're when you doing, like, with your hands, you know, like, trying to show how big a rack is. Yeah. Like, he, was, he was this big. He was this big. And just put his hands out as far as he could. <laughs> and I was like, was it, the, was it the one we got on camera? Was it, was it trips? And he's like, I don't know, but he was this big. It just... <laughs> Like his facial expression and just, it was his first buck with a bow too. Oh, wow. And, and just, I mean, I'll never forget that night because he was just, he could hardly talk and be able to, to experience that. And then going back into town and giving it some time. Cause I was like, well, where'd you hit it? And he had just zero clue where it hit. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> it was right at last light. And, uh, so then we finally went back with a buddy and, you know, it had been raining all day, and so we had to walk. You know, it was about a mile walk, and this just muddy pit cornfield, just awful. <laughs> and uh, we get back there, find the arrow, and the blood trail was like, you know, following the yellow brick road. I mean, it was right. just caked. We walked up on him, and we had to cross this little creek, and seeing that buck laying there it was that, you know, that, that memory of that, like, you know, almost like a photograph in your head just yeah. sticks with me forever. And um, seeing him experience that was it was pretty special to be a part of that and to, to think it kind of epitomizes what hunting's all about because when I tell a story to people, you know, they always go, well, weren't you pissed because you were supposed to be in that stand? You know, because originally I was going to sit it, but I would forgot my bow back in the car. And I was, no, not even a little bit, you know, right. because you're just as excited for someone else. You know, you're a really good friend to shoot something. So yeah. I think it kind of just ties in all aspects of hunting and one of my favorite stories to tell. 100% man like that's it's funny that you mentioned that at the very end there because I was thinking that as you were kind of wrapping it where I was like like this is like a, this is a great story like this is what it's supposed to be about you know what I mean of sharing those those types of experiences with you know people that you're your friends with people that you love that you care about you know and, and it's not about a competition and course we all want to kill nice deer you know what i mean like that's, oh. that's that's what you go into the woods for you know what i mean but at the end of the day it's like you know you can't begrudge someone else's success you know you should be happy that they that they're that they're finding success you know it's uh it doesn't yeah. do, it doesn't do you any good to to begrudge or try to just dis discredit someone else's accomplishments you know what i mean right and especially when it's your i mean how would you feel if it was reversed and all of a sudden your buddy's pissed at you because you shot a buck that you guys were hunting together you yeah. know yeah, you know, it's, it just doesn't make any sense, but 
Well, cool, man. Like before I uh, before I let you go, though, man, I want to make sure we give uh, give the folks out there a chance to to learn more about where they can uh, to follow you and find out more about you. So, if you wouldn't mind, let us know where they can uh, to uh, get a hold and follow Mister Alex Comstock. Yeah, um, pretty much just whitetaildna.com. It's got everything there. Um, you know, Facebook, Instagram. YouTube. I'm really trying to build up YouTube lately and get more video work out. I'm trying to keep it up this year with kind of the semi-live-ish format, you know, mm-hmm. getting hunts up a couple days after they happen. Um, so, yeah, pretty much pretty much uh, right there. Nice, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on and uh, and, and, and sharing the hunt with us and, and, and talking about your transition from you know, North Dakota back to, uh, back to Minnesota. Good luck to you this year and, uh, good luck on those, uh, the suburban properties, man. I might have to shoot you a couple of text, uh, text messages of those swamp donkeys I'm chasing so we can kind of compare notes. Yeah, for sure. I'd totally be down for that. All right, brother. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Clint. You have a good one. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Alex for joining us. And of course, like to thank all of you for listening. Be sure to follow Alex on Instagram. Check out his blog, Whitetail DNA. I'll, of course, place both of these links uh, where you can find him in the show notes. Also, if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so in iTunes. Uh, We'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. I could show you through the door. gang the new truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on youtube below any of the truth from the stand videos i've got some new hats beanies t-shirts long sleeve t-shirts and sweatshirts there's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro dosing adversity so head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code truth t-r-u-t-h and save yourself some cash on the new gear